This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today, I am joined by Dan McCarthy. Dan is the Assistant Professor of Marketing at Emory University. He's also the Director and Co-Founder of Theta. I am super excited for him to be here today. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Chris. Dan, why don't you tell everybody a little bit more about what you do as a professor and what you do at Theta? Yeah, so in some ways, uh, very different, but in some ways, they're exactly the same. I, I basically focus on predicting what customers will do. And um, as a professor, I do that through my academic work. You know, so I have a lot of uh, research on this emerging area of customer-based corporate valuation, as I call it, which is basically uh, predicting when customers will adopt a, a company, uh, how many purchases they'll make until they end their relationship, how much they spend, and then using that to inform an understanding of how valuable that company is and how good their unit economics are. Um, so that's on the one side. I, I've been venturing a bit more into uh, other related problems, more around understanding the the impact that certain actions are are, are having on customers' behavior, like causal causal effects. Uh, so that's been an interesting but related area. Again, all about customer purchasing, but more about um, you know what impact that certain actions or events have on on customers' purchase behavior. Uh, and then as as an entrepreneur. Uh, again, the work is pretty much the same thing. It's just predicting what customers will do, <laughs> yada, yada, yada. Uh, but I basically do that work on behalf of private equity firms and companies directly. So you will kind of run the models and, uh, and provide the, the insights and outputs to, uh, to the firms that we're doing the work for. And those firms are looking to potentially make an investment in some brand company, something like that, correct? Typically, that's the context. Yes. So actually, right now, probably 50% of our business is with private equity. Uh, the other 50% is with corporate. Uh, but with corporate, oftentimes, it is the, the business development, corporate development department. Uh, or they're looking to, to raise uh, funding themselves or pursue strategic alternatives, in which case, it's still investment, but it's, it's that they would be uh, the company being invested in as opposed to the other way around. Got it. Okay. Yeah. All right. And how did you, how did you get here? What did, how did you become the assistant professor? How did Theta come to be? Tell us a little bit about the background of how you ended up where you are today. You yeah, it's really because just... I can't, I can't focus on any one thing for too long. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I started, uh, I, I had graduated from Wharton, uh, and I went to wall street and I was, uh, at a, a value based hedge fund for about six years. So died in the wool finance person. And then uh, I made the pivot to a statistics PhD uh, at the Wharton School. But then in the middle of the PhD, uh, I pivoted towards marketing. Uh, so I finished my my PhD in statistics, but half my committee were marketing people and half my committee were uh, statistics people. Uh, so uh, the way I'll kind of pitch it is, or rationalize it, depends on how you think about it, <laughs> is uh, I was still doing prediction, but now the only thing I'm predicting is what customers will do. So in, in some sense, again, it's uh, it's still statistics, but uh, it's just a bit more scoped. Um, the entrepreneurial bend happened in the middle of the PhD. You know, so it was in the second or third year of the PhD that 
uh, my advisor and I decided to take some of the work that we were doing academically and start doing it for real companies. Uh, so, so again, that, that's kind of the other fork in the road. Um, so yes, yeah, so I think that pretty much covers everything until now. <laughs> but, yeah. So how did you end up getting connected with the people who would actually pay you guys to do this work? It's, it's a great question. Uh, at the start, so at Zodiac, uh, basically you know, Pete Fader, he was the, the person that I co-founded uh, Zodiac with. Uh, he had, he's been a marketing professor there for 30 years. So yeah, as you can imagine, he just came to to know a lot of people. And so a lot of our initial clients, they were all kind of inbound, uh, driven off of relationships that he had with, with people at those companies. Uh, so that was certainly really helpful for, uh, getting revenue in the door, uh, at a very, very early stage in our life cycle. Uh, I think that that really, that really helped kind of set, set us in the right trajectory. And, and then you guys sold that to Nike. That's right. Yeah. So we, um, so at Zodiac, we kind of pursued the traditional venture-backed, let's grow this thing, let's burn money the whole way up. <laughs> um, and and burn we did. <laughs> uh, yeah, we grew really, really quickly. We had very good unit economics, by the way, but you know, we just had a lot of overhead expense. Um, and we we had the, the term sheet for our A round on our desk. And came in with an offer that uh, just based on our you know, fiduciary responsibility to our investors, we, we couldn't turn it down. So, um, so yeah, the outcome ended up being great. Uh, you know, the company ended up obviously getting folded into, uh, Nike, but thankfully, uh, Nike was very flexible with, uh, both Pete and myself, you know, given the fact that we our, our primary day job is as, you know, faculty members. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was quite a ride. Uh, but that was, uh, it was kind of how, how that particular ride, um, uh, had ended for, at least for us. <clears throat> Interesting. Um, it's fascinating that Nike was the brand. You might have thought like some research shop would have bought you, but an actual consumer product brand bought you. Yeah, we were. We wouldn't have thought that ourselves. We <laughs> were. We would have thought if anybody it would be like a Salesforce or a Google. You know, we we had a software platform that essentially allowed us to automatically spit out very highly validated individual level forecasts of customer purchasing. And, um, and so if, if you had a, a very large number of companies that you serve through like a Google or a Salesforce, uh, that would be a pretty natural fit. Now, Nike, I think the, obviously, as we know now, you know, they've been making this humongous investment in their own direct efforts. So opening up stores and, uh, increasing activity through, uh, through their own website. So, um, so in retrospect, it makes a lot of sense, but I think it's also an interesting sign of the times as to how things are changing now that Nike 30 years ago would not have given us a second look, you know, that they were primarily selling through the footlockers of the world. And so they had no idea oftentimes who their customer was, unless they considered the customer to be the, the retailer, you know, the, those intermediaries. But, um, but yeah, you know, the world's changed. You know, they're, they're getting a significant and uh, very quickly growing proportion of their revenue from uh, activity that is fully trackable. And from their standpoint, given the big investment that they've been making into it, you know, they want to see a, a return on that investment. And so uh, to invest in, uh, in other solutions that can help them understand the value of these customers and what makes them tick, uh, 
it makes a lot of sense. Uh, but yeah, certainly I, I felt exactly the same way that you did. <laughs> so interesting. Okay. I want to bring us to the next part of the show. We call this clear the air. I got three personal questions for you. Are you ready? I think so. <laughs> All right. Question one. When is the last time you tried something for the first time? Uh, you know, I adopted into a totally new restaurant for the first time yesterday. Okay. So very cool. You know, what type of restaurant? Uh, Italian food. Because uh, my, my four-year-old daughter, she uh, she had requested Italian food. All right. Very cool. <laughs> and I was, uh, my, my wife's on a work trip. I'm there. I'm like, all right, so where can I order delivery from? <laughs> right. And uh, there's like the usual places where I'd go to uh, you know, if, if we were going in person, but they didn't deliver. You know, so I needed to, to change it up. So thankfully, uh, this place ended up being really quite good. But uh, again, sign of the times of the, the world that we live in today. For sure. <laughs> Okay. Question two. What is one thing most people agree with, but you do not? Uh, I don't know if, if, yeah, I don't know if most people would agree with this. I, I would think a majority of people would, uh, but improving customer satisfaction grows customer value. Invest in the customer. And you would think, especially as a marketing professor and someone who focuses on customer lifetime value, that, that I would think that that is always true. Um, but but I don't think that it's always true. And I think that you need to take into account the cost, you know, the cost of improving customer satisfaction. And then it becomes a, a return on investment calculation. You know, so certainly happy customers will probably at least do a bit more. But when you kind of weigh that against the expense associated with improving it, then it becomes an empirical question. And it depends on the company and the market structure and the customer and all sorts of other factors. So, uh, so it's not, not, not that simple. <laughs> yes. Sometimes Simeon Siegel from BMO advisors, he did a, uh, a presentation. Uh, he, he came on the show and he said, uh, we don't have an oversaturation of stores in America. We have an oversaturation of discounts. And he said what some retailers need to do instead of, closing unprofitable stores is stop selling to unprofitable customers. And so I thought that was interesting. He did a whole thing. What, what would happen if certain brands raised price um, versus uh, closed stores? So it was interesting. Yeah, uh, I feel exactly the same way. Yeah. And in fact, um, your very best customers, they're not often very price sensitive. And sure. so they would be willing to, to pay a higher price. Will they be satisfied by that? No, <laughs> but they'll pay it because what they really care about are other things. It could be the quality of the product. It could be, you know, if you're a service provider that, that you don't have downtime, you know, and you're willing to, to pay a bit more for that as kind of an insurance policy. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, so certainly I think that that's a, a great example of an area where, Customers may not be more satisfied, but the company is going to be a lot more profitable. <clears throat> sure. Okay. Last question. What is one skill you don't possess but wish you did? I wish I was one of those people who could just sleep for four hours a day and be, you know, fast as lightning the next day. But I am not that person. Interesting. <laughs> so, How many hours of sleep do you need? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm one of those optimizer people. Um, so I traditionally need eight, but I'll finagle all sorts of routines to try and cut it like on specific days. And so one day without sleep and then six days with you know, that sort of thing. But, um, 
I've kind of thrown in the towel and I think I just, uh, now I'm just trying to optimize what I can do in, in the limited hours that I have when I sleep normally. So yeah, so, so eight is the number, but, but I still, uh, I still fight it <laughs> with, with, uh, it, it's hard to control your own sleep when you have, when you've the last four years, you just had a child and four-year-old, uh, daughter. I, I have a three and a four-year-old. So oftentimes you don't control your own destiny when it comes to sleep. Yep. You're, <laughs> you're along for the ride. You're along for the ride. <laughs> so. Okay. So let's move on to the, the, the set that we're going to talk about today. We got three topics we're going to, we're going to get through. One is unit economics are all over the map. Two is the distortion in, uh, numbers. And three is where do we go from here? So I'm going to throw that out there. When you say unit economics are all over the map, what are we talking about, Dan? Yeah, basically that uh, a lot of companies are, are going to market right now, uh, but there's just significant variation in how good their unit economics are. So, yeah, so th- I think that there are c- circumstances and areas where uh, there's kind of some broader macro factor and kind of all the companies move up and down in tandem with one another. Uh, but I think this is one, one area where we see a lot of variation, which creates very interesting investing opportunities. Uh, if everyone was the same, then, you know, um, it wouldn't really matter very much uh, being surgical and selective and doing hardcore due diligence. But, uh, but that, it's definitely not the case in the, the direct-to-consumer space. Let's go back in time, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Were unit economics tighter? Were they more close? Were they similar? This unit economics all over the map, is this, is this unique to the times? Uh, I think a little bit. Yeah, I think that for one, uh, the rise of the hyper-funded startup uh, has created some of the variation. Yeah, so you have these companies that have, have raised $400, $500 million uh, by the time they go public, and they're still relatively young at the time they go public. It's not that you know they, they've been around forever. Um, that you'll have some companies that have amazing uh amazingly valuable customers after acquisition. And so the 500 million actually can help them prove out that they can scale. Uh, but then you have other companies, you know, I'd probably argue a lot more <laughs> uh, where they take all that money and they funnel it into, into marketing that grows sales, but they ha- haven't really shown the ability to, to have great return on investment through those marketing channels. Uh, so, so, you combine that with the fact that uh, obviously venture capital strongly emphasizes growth. You know that uh, the whole issue of profitability is something they'll often be okay with, kind of saving for later. You know, but if you can show really strong top line growth measures that, you know, at least in the the relatively early stages, um, that's enough to command you. You know, the, the very significant markup uh, on the next round. So. Yeah, so I think that that's been uh, definitely a factor. Um, yeah, I think kind of flipping it around, when you don't have uh, capital as readily available, it, it imposes discipline on a company. And so that may lead to a slower rate of growth, but it forces the customer lifetime value to be positive. You know, right. if a company is, pro- is profitable, <laughs> then it's accounting identity that that must mean that the, co- that the company also has positive lifetime value and probably pretty good lifetime value. Um, 
So, so I want you to, for those who don't know, when you're talking about union economics, we're talking about the union economics of a good, a product that some brand or DTC company is selling, correct? That's actually, uh, it's, it's a great point. Let's kind of take it back one level. Unit economics is kind of the, the profit or the economics of some unit. And that unit can be uh, an order. Uh, but traditionally, as I think about it, uh, the economics are of a customer. Of a and customer, so, okay. Yeah, so at the order level, you know, you've got the, the revenue that you're getting, you know, which is the price that you charge, less any discounts. And then uh, all the associated variable expenses, you know, so the cost of uh, the goods, the direct labor, you know, if, if you're shipping it from from somewhere, the uh, all the fulfillment expenses, and then uh, the expected return-related expenses and restocking fees. You know, those would all be baked into the order economics. The the customer economics would be, uh, you know, kind of taking the order economics and then embedding that within uh, this framework of, I spent this amount of money to acquire the customer, and now I'm getting this stream of orders from him or her uh, until you know, he or she ends uh, their relationship with the company. So, um, so the order economics kind of insert themselves into the customer economics. Like you can't really do customer economics well without doing order economics well first. Uh, but then you need to think about uh, acquisition costs, and then you need to think about uh, customer retention and customer order frequency uh, to, to kind of work it all in. Okay. And you mentioned LTV, lifetime value. So, and mm -hmm. what do you mean by that? Yes, the customer lifetime value is truly, it's, it's the, the value of a customer, factoring in all, uh, all expenses and revenues. Yeah, so the amount that you spent to acquire the customer relative to the net present value of all the orders that you're going to get from that customer and all the profit you're going to get from those orders. You throw all that together and, and the number that you get, that is customer lifetime value. Got it. If we had to point to one thing that's making these unit economics all over the map, we would say it is what? I think we'd really kind of need to. <laughs> um, well, uh, yeah, it's, it's so hard to, to boil it down because in some of these names, there's actually a few. Um, so maybe if, if you'll afford me three. Go ahead, go um, to three. <laughs> yeah, one is acquisition cost. One is order frequency. And then one is the, the variable margin. You know, I think those are kind of the, the three. And they all play into each other. That's sure. the thing. Like if, if you drop price significantly, you're going to bring in more customers, which is going to lower your CAC. And so they all kind of bop around each other. And so companies will kind of mess around with those three, but they all, they're all kind of revolving around the same, the same, the same thing. Lastly, you mentioned getting to scale. One of the things that I find this interesting because I think getting to scale is different for every company. What does scale mean? And I think the thing that's interesting is the, a, a lot, to get to a scale that's like profitable, look at Amazon, who's not DTC per se, but e-commerce, right? Took them a long time to get to profitable on the, the retailing of the goods. And there's still argument on that out there. Mm -hmm. And and then I guess, so how big do some of these companies have to get to get to positive order and customer economics? What, you know, because... I think that's, isn't that the million dollar question? Like at what scale does this all work? And 
it seems like to get to that scale is getting to numbers that are costing companies more than they ever dreamed? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and I think it, it kind of raises two, you know, two levels of profitability. One being like overall contribution profitability, which is purely variable, you know, so comparing uh, incremental cost you know, to acquire versus the incremental profits you get from that customer. And that can be significantly positive for companies that are losing gobs of money because they have a lot of overhead. And, uh, and so um, all the accountants and all of the, you know, the, the headquarters and the salaries that, that you're paying, all those things that don't really change very much when revenue grows, you know, those can, can really encumber a company um, that has really good customer economics. So I'll often say customer economics does not mean that the company will be profitable today, uh, but it means that if the company were to scale, as you say, that they will be able to scale themselves into profitability. And I think the challenge is there are a lot of companies today that they're growing really quickly, but their customer economics are so bad that they don't really have a path to profitability because there's just not really a whole lot of variable profitability there, you know? And so, you know, the example I often give is if your CLV is negative, then you could have infinite growth. You could acquire every person in the world and still not be profitable. Sure. So, yeah, so I kind of, I'll kind of distinguish those two. And so it, it raises these interesting trade-offs that when a company is early on in its life, oftentimes the customer economics can actually counterintuitively be the best in the sense that the customers that you're acquiring, um, they're often the diehard loyals. You know, they're the ones who are willing to join you really early on in your life. And that's saying something about them. Um, but then also the, the companies themselves are probably not, they're probably acquiring a lot of these customers through word of mouth and organic channels. And so they don't have to, to spend up the nose to bring the customers in in the first place. So obviously when you're early on in your life, you're probably over-investing in your overhead you know, to, to, to be able to scale. You know, so you won't necessarily be profitable then. But the economics of those customers can actually be quite good. And the tricky part, I think, is when you scale, you know, especially if you're like a retailer, um, to show that you can scale, you need to be profitable in like on Facebook and Google. You know, these really large channels that have really... Uh, large numbers of people who who circulate through them, and and those channels are expensive. You know, and the people that you're bringing in, they're not your diehard loyals anymore. You know, so it's really it's like a a stress test of the model along those two pretty important dimensions. Yeah. That um, yeah, I think that that really can be a litmus test for you know the ability of a company to to be successful at scale. <clears throat> Got it. Okay. That's one. I'm mindful of time here. I'm, caught, I'm, I'm conscious of time. We got started a little late. I want to get to number two, which is this distortion of numbers. What's what numbers are being distorted, Dan? Uh, so it's it's the real wild wild west uh, before companies go public. But you would think, especially in SEC filings, that that it would get a lot better. You know, sure. Yeah. If I'm reading through an IPO perspective, that those numbers must be all fairly standardized, right? Wrong. They're completely different from company to company. And the, the problem is 
while the income statement and the statement of cash flows and the balance sheet, those all, you know, those, those are very standard. But as soon as you move to anything customer related, those are not required disclosures. And uh, there's no standards for how any of those measures should be defined. And so, so companies will take liberties, uh, to put it lightly, <laughs> as to how those measures uh, you know, should be defined. So they'll have these astronomical t- you know, total applicable market figures that no one really believes. Um, but then even things like contribution margin, which you would think would be fairly you know, easy, to, easy to state, um, even those will be kind of funky. Um, and then customer lifetime figures, again, those will be totally all over the map. So, yeah, there's this really, there's no standards. Um, you know, we, we really, we've been in touch with FASB, you know, the Financial Accounting Standards Board, to try and uh, at least have some informal standards as to how some of these measures should be defined. But yeah, I, I really feel like the SEC on some level is letting investors down because you have all these companies coming to market where, you know, they're kind of flying blind. You know, investors don't really have what they need. And, you know, if you're someone like us who's willing to sit down with a 300-page prospectus and read it very carefully, you know, we, we may come to the right conclusion. But, you know, especially in these days, you know, in the Robin Hood era, um, you have a lot of people who who won't be that careful. So, so you really need to kind of help them a little bit more so that they're armed with the information they need to, to make informed decisions. This brings a whole, you could spend hours on this topic, right? This number two, we could spend hours on this topic, but we don't have hours, but a couple of things. A lot of companies put out like supplements that are not right when they, the public companies, they put out supplements and those are how they see the world, right? Those are their numbers. They're not necessarily, you know, and they, they say they're not standardized numbers in those supplements, right? They're just giving more context in their view around the actual standardized income statement balance sheet, right? That's what those are doing, right? They put together investor decks. They have investor presentation days and, and, and so I don't, do you really think that's that new? I don't know that it's necessarily a new issue so much as, um, you know, for one, uh, direct-to-consumer has become a lot more prevalent. Right. And we really need these sorts of uh, disclosures specifically for those types of companies. So as, like, as the mix shift is shifting towards that type of company, um, it just becomes more relevant. Yeah, I think uh, I think that that's a big one, especially at IPO time. Yeah, you know, the other issue is historically IPO investors were mostly institutional investors, but you know these a lot days, of direct listings now. Yeah, now you know now it's uh, it's a bit more open to retail investors. Yeah, you know, so you have a lot more people uh, participating in those who who hadn't before, and so the investor base is also you know shifting a bit too. Fair enough. That 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 is totally true with the, you know, the access between, as you say, the Robin Hoods of the world and whatnot. Any companies that come to mind recently that, and if you don't want to talk about any of that, that's fine, but that you, you like read this prospectus and you were like, blew your hair back? Aspiration Financial was okay. probably the worst one. Um, that wasn't an IPO prospectus, but as you say, it was one of those investor presentations. Okay. And, um, and I think the, the investor presentations, they're kind of next level because there are no, there, there isn't even an SEC looking exactly, over anything. Exactly, yeah. 
Yeah, so they'll just kind of put figures in the presentations and they won't even have definitions for them. At least in typically in IPO prospectuses, we'll have some definitions. <laughs> so uh, Aspiration Financial, they um, they put some truly remarkable uh, things in, in the filings about LTV and CAC that um, as soon as you start reading the fine print, you just, I, I was blown away. Yeah, I, I literally almost felt sick to my stomach. Um, any, okay, <laughs> any DTC brands? Uh, direct to consumer, well, you, you have companies like Peloton that took some pretty aggressive liberties in how they defined uh, customer lifetime. You know, so I don't know if there's a good solution for it, but they basically had uh, stated this lifetime value calculation that was predicated on um, an average customer lifetime of something like 13 years. They didn't say it, but if you actually look at their definition, you the definition that. was there. Um, and 13 years for any consumer brand, for an average consumer, when you know, especially for the subscriptions, which is what they were referring to, there are a whole bunch of people who churn out in the first hand of years, to have that, to have the average the lifetime average thirteen years means you have to have a whole bunch of people who are staying with them for like twenty five or more years, um, and twenty five year subscription for a, on a Peloton. I mean that that starts becoming a, a meaningful proportion of of the human life. <laughs> so it, at some point, human mortality becomes a, a cause of churn. Um, so so there. Are, that the calculation that they had done was riddled with issues like that. There were many, many more. Yeah, happy to kind of go through them. But um, you know, it's just kind of an example that even in SEC filing, they could get away with putting something like that in there. <clears throat> right. Okay. Fascinating stuff. We're, we're going to have to bring you on to go further and deeper, maybe after Christmas or something like that. Yeah, there's a lot of stories like that. Happy to, <laughs> happy yeah. to go in, in, okay. into more of them later. And then the third thing is, well, where do we go from here, Dan? Uh, that that I wish I had. I, I wish I had the answer to that question. Um, but you know, certainly, I think what one thing that's been interesting to see is we've seen, uh, especially over the past couple of weeks, um, a number of companies come out saying that uh, things are looking good now, uh, but they're guiding to significant weakness, like over the next year. And it's it's interesting in the sense that you know things have kind of gotten back to normal. I mean, at least to some degree, when you look at a lot of the, the foot traffic data, you know, that a lot of the foot traffic data is becoming more normal. Um, and yet, you know, the, the repercussions in terms of customer purchasing, I feel like we haven't yet seen that. So, yeah, I feel like, whereas on the way down, yeah, as, as COVID was first getting started, that shift was very abrupt. You know, we saw everyone's purchase behavior change immediately. Uh, but I feel like on the other side, I, th I think that it's it's playing out over time a little bit more. You know, it's not like you would expect this, you know, light switch to go off and suddenly everyone's going going along their new normal. You know, I think that, that uh, that's going to take a little bit more time. Uh, and so, so I think it, it's a little bit premature right now for many companies, good or bad, to I think either declare victory or defeat based on, on what they're seeing like on the ground today. Um, I think, you know, there is some, there's some data points so, that are suggesting just uh, so good or bad you know, shifts as we kind of move forward. <laughs> so, but let's unpack this a little bit though, Dan, like 
I'm reading today. I'll pull up the article I'm reading from Retail Dive. And the headline is, Dillard's Q3 profits skyrocket more than 500%. Could they responsibly guide to an increase next year? Yeah, it's hard. So so I want to go like, of course, they're going to, you know, I I don't know. I haven't looked at their numbers, but I haven't looked at what their earnings, you know, what the earnings statement said. But my guess is they're going to have to guide down, right? Like it would just be so unprecedented, right? And to that end, I don't think that's a sign that the economy's weakening or doing bad. Like if, oh yeah, it's not even necessarily. Yeah. I think also um, some of the companies are doing really, really well, but you know, I I think about examples like Peloton, you know, their, their guidance has significantly changed, you know? So even three months ago, you know, market consensus, and I believe their own guidance had pegged the revenue over the next year, at something like five and a half billion dollars. And they just said over the last three months, oops, well, you know, based on what we're seeing now, we're going to lower it to four and a half or, or really it was 4.4 to 4.8. Um, yeah, that's big jump. It's clearly big. Yes, it's really. But, you know, I would also say you know, Peloton is one specific example. And, you know, I think there could be some company specific factors going on with them in particular. Um, but it is that broader point that like what the heck happened in the last three months that led to such a significant change in their their view of of, of how the futures can be? So, so I'm entirely with you that I think the comps are, are amazing right now. And you know, even if we were to see kind of a bump down, it, it may still put a lot of these companies above where they were in 2019. You know, but I think there are, it's still just like this big question mark. You know, that, uh, when, I, when I look at Peloton, right, one of the things I would think, this is just so anecdotal, I think, one of the challenges they have, I think their CAC's going to get really tough because the customers that they have to go after now are the less affluent, right? Because yep. their product, their price point, and you just did, you posted something on Planet Fitness recently, right? Mm-hmm. Price point, value consumer, price point, very low, easy entry. And, you know, they're back to... I think you said 97% of memberships to pre-pandemic. That's right. Yeah. Right. And, and, and so when you, when you look at Peloton, if, if they're going, I don't know if they're going after the planet fitness customer, whomever they're going to go after next, right? Cause most of the affluent, it feels like they, they have a lot of the affluent and that affluent is still going to other gyms and using other forms of fitness. It's just, you know, it's a luxury and now they have financing Peloton, but to get that other customer, you know, financing is one way, but I, I think the CAC's going to get tough to get if they're going to break in and to a different different tier. Yeah, it's a really. Uh, I think one of the things that's making it really uncertain for them and for me, you know, it's just, as to where 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 we'll be in, in the year, is you've got Planet Fitness where not only are subscriptions up, yeah, even the foot traffic is at ninety eight percent of pre pandemic levels. So people are going back to those gyms, like they're actually in the gyms now. Um, at Planet Fitness, but then if you look at Equinox or Equinox, they're at something like sixty-six percent of pre-pandemic uh, levels, and so I'll so give you still... my real estate take on that. Though I think Equinox yeah. is a great brand. The real estate take on that is, I think mm. Equinox is in the locations they are, are in some urban environments that haven't fully come back yet from a post-COVID world, whereas Planet Fitness is in more the suburban world where. There's less restrictions, people coming back in that whole world. Yeah, yeah, that uh, I think that that could play a role. 
Yeah. But I think the fact that they're at 66%, I think they're more of the comp you know, to watch for someone like Peloton because they kind of sell at that higher price point. And so if you're someone at Peloton, you may wonder, is that 66 going to go to 98 next year for, for Equinox? Or, um, or is it going to stay at 66? Now, yeah, I think that's the sort of thing that could potentially be a, a big swing factor for a company like them. Um, but I think it makes it, it makes for a lot more uncertainty. Actually, it would be less uncertain if, if Equinox was at 98, because then at least you know they've gone back. You know? So whatever we're seeing today, hopefully should be more reflective of kind of what we would expect you know, over the next handful of months. But because they're not quite there yet, yeah, I think that's the the uncertainty is still uh, somewhat high. I'm glad they're at least 98 percent at Planet Fitness. That's great. I'm glad people yeah. are going back to the gym. Anyway, okay. Yeah, I want to bring us to the last part of the show. I got three quick questions for you, and we're going to have to bring you on, Dan. You you got too much to share. And if you're not following Dan, go follow him on Twitter and LinkedIn. He he's Daniel McCarthy. He puts out a lot of interesting stuff. That's how I found him. Uh, most recently, he was on the Scott Galloway podcast. He's doing a lot of this now, so check him out. All right, Dan. Way too kind. <laughs> I got three questions for you. Ready? Let's go for it. What extinct retailer do you wish would come back from the dead? It's a tough one. Um, yeah, I, I liked some of the product assortment at Pier 1 Imports. All right. There you go. Yeah. Question two. What is the last item over $20 you bought in a store? That's a great question. Yeah, it's been months, sadly, since I've I've bought something that's not food related in a store. <laughs> that's okay. over twenty dollars. So, so actually, I don't know that I've got a good answer for that question right now. A lot of people say scotch, uh, but uh, it could be the 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 base. Yeah, if it's like a kid. food item, then yeah. then yeah, then I could answer that pretty easily. Um, Give me a food item. Yeah, it'd probably be my yeah uh, restaurant food somewhere. Okay. <laughs> All right. Question three. If you and I were shopping at Target and I lost you, what aisle would I find you in? There's probably some more elegant answer for this, but the real answer is I'd probably be in the pretzel aisle. I'd be, uh, <laughs> I'm going for my Snyder's to Hannah for pretzels. So. <laughs> Perfect. I like the uh, honey honey mustard Snyder's if you've never had those. Those are good, too. Yep, those, are, those are good, too. Okay. Well, listen, Dan, this was great. Thank you so much. You presented a lot of thought-provoking stuff to the listeners. I really appreciate it. Um, Let's do this again sometime. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.